Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, I'm Joanna Biggs, one of the editors at the London Review of Books, and I'm here today with Susan Pedersen, Professor of History at Columbia, to talk about the life and writing of the British playwright Sheila Delaney. In the latest issue of the London Review, dated the 4th of June 2020, Susan reviews Selena Todd's new biography of Delaney, Tastes of Honey, as well as a new edition of Delaney's play, A Taste of Honey, which premiered at the Theatre Royal Stratford East in May 1958. Delaney was only 20 at the time, and this, her first play, went on to the West End and Broadway and to be made into a movie by Tony Richardson, starring Rita Tushingham in her first role. Susan, your piece opens with the play. What's so extraordinary about it? How does it still live for you? The play, I think, is remarkable for a number of reasons. I, um, both because it really defies convention, both in terms of, of what we might call women's writing and in terms of what was the kind of script for new and exciting work at the time, which sort of fell into the angry young man category. When we think of women's fiction, we think of the marriage plot. Um, Boy meets girl, they get, you know, there's a kind of resolution. This goes back to Austen and, you know, you see it everywhere. And the angry young man script is very different. It's very much about young men in rebellion against the kind of what they see as the kind of boring conventionality of 50s Britain, but also really against the marriage plot. There's a sense in in plays like Look Back in Anger or a novel like Room at the Top that men are out there to kind of, men need to escape women who are trying to attract them into matrimony. And what's so interesting about Delaney's play is that Delaney structures her play entirely around these two women. They're a mother and daughter pair. It's not around uh, a romance. There are romances in the play, but it's a young school leaver, uh, Joe, who's 15 when the play starts. Her mother is Helen, about 40. Kind of reviewers tended to say Helen was a prostitute. She is not a prostitute. She's just somebody who needs a little help from men friends now and then. So in the play, she eventually takes up with a new younger uh, man, a World War II veteran, and she marries him. And so, but the play starts out with this banter and kind of animosity, but it's very intimate between Joe and Helen. They've just flitted. They've skipped out on their rent. They've found a new place to live. Joe's upset because... There's only a single bedroom. She's going to have to sleep with her mother, and she's really sick of that. Um, Helen's rummaging around trying to find a bottle of something to take her mind off the just general wretchedness of the situation. And it goes on from there with Helen taking up uh, with Peter, this uh, younger man, and eventually leaving Joe, and Joe taking up with a young black sailor, and Delaney is also, we could talk about this, very unusual in the way she incorporates, um, in which 
non-white characters are not social problems. They're just part of the landscape of everyday life. And Jimmy is a very charming character. He takes up with Joe, but then he kind of vanishes. Um, in the movie, he, you see him sailing away. He's a sailor. And so Joe is left pregnant. And she then moves in with a gay art student, or rather the gay art student moves in with her and tries to take care of her. But all that ends when Helen comes back. The marriage, short-term marriage with Peter has fallen apart and it ends basically where it starts, which, which is with these two women shouting at each other in a bedsit. So it's a very interesting play because there's a lot of, of dialogue and the dialogue is intensely rich, but not really all that much happens. I mean, when it was made into a movie, they had to stick a few other scenes in so they'd get these two women out of the bedsit. But otherwise, it's just all takes place in this kind of slightly down at heel apartment. It's the bedroom. Well, what do you think? Chair in the bed again, I see. Of course, I can't bear to be parted from you, not for a minute. But I wouldn't give for a room of my own. Oh, isn't that awful? Well, don't look at it then. Oh, I do hate to see an unshaded electric lamp all dangling away from the ceiling like that. Oh, you do get on my nerves, you do. Why can't you leave things alone? I can get a proper shade tomorrow. Tomorrow? What makes you think we're going to live that long? I love what you say about the marriage plot in the piece, that it's not just... So the angry young men... I really think of the beginning of John Osborne's play with the ironing and the Sunday morning boredom and the newspaper to this kind of fake marriage they've got going on. And it isn't just the other side of, it's not just the woman's side of that, isn't it? This play, it, it's a completely different plot altogether. Yes, that's that's really right. Um, one of the things that's so interesting and kind of amusing about A Taste of Honey is that Joe, at least, is not really after marriage. I mean, she's she is entrapped by maternity. And there's a kind of, there's part of the plot is Joe's, it isn't rebellion because she knows she can't rebel against it, but Joe's feeling that she's stuck with having this baby and she's repeating what her mother did. And she's not happy about that. And she, but she also feels she's not going to try and find Jimmy. There's a little courtship between the two of them where he buys her a ring from Woolworths and says he's going to marry her. And but, you know, they, they both have the sense that this is really not realistic. And Jeff, actually, the gay art student, also really cares for Joe and says he'll marry her and he'd love to raise the baby with her and so on. And she doesn't want any of those things. She's not interested in marriage. She was interested in Jimmy because he was fun and and brought romance and some just life into her life. and. So she's not she's not trading on marriage. And Helen has it's actually odd and perhaps a bit conventional that Helen marries Peter. That's a very surprising thing, actually, about the play, because Helen had an unhappy marriage. You know that from the play. And she's had various things with other men. That's clear, too. So it's actually a, a kind of oddly conventional that she marries Peter. Mm. I love the sense that almost there's two parallel plots, Helen and Joe's, in a play together. That seems to me really interesting and unusual. It also made me think of 
Um, there's a wonderful line that you keep repeating through the piece, ruin it your own way. I kind of love saying that. <laughs> I feel I should say that to lots of people in my life. And it almost encapsulates this this generation kind of problem that you get off in feminism or other sort of things with mother and daughter kind of plots that the mother, the daughter forgets what the mother's learned or the daughter's forced to, to kind of correct the mother's mistakes. What's so lovely is this freedom in saying ruin it your own way. I love the way you put that out in the piece. Yes, I think Helen is an interesting character in that respect because she's she picks on Joe constantly and she's criticizing her and she's clearly not anything that we would call maternal. She's not very loving, but she's proud of Joe in a funny way. She's proud of her spunkiness. She thinks she should stick up for herself and she really thinks that Joe has the right to make her own mistakes, but also to kind of make a bid for fun and for pleasure and for freedom, even if it is damaging, even if she has to bear the consequences of it, even if she has to pay for it. There's this kind of sense that, you know, women pay for things and they know they'll pay for them, but they don't see why they shouldn't try anyway, or they shouldn't do it anyway, that they need some fun in life. And that's a lovely thing. And the play actually is also, I think one of its pleasures is that it's, it's, it has a nice sense of irony. It's actually very funny. And Helen and Joe are both quite funny characters. They have good senses of humor. You're up early. It's a long way from here to school each day. Not for much longer, thank God. Only a few more days. He's still set on leaving then. What are you going to do? Get out of your sight as soon as possible. Put a bit of money in my pocket. Well, then it's your life. Ruin it your own way. Take me home and dad look after myself. Here, love, you've forgotten it. Oh. Give those to me. Oh, I said. These are the Have you done these? Yes. Oh, I didn't realise I got such a talented daughter. I'm not just talented, I'm genius. What's these? Self-portraits. Oh, give them here. Oh, I suppose you've got to draw yourself. Nobody else has draw you. Hey! Is that supposed to be me? Yes. Well, don't I look a proper misery? Still, it's very artistic, isn't it? Tell me, Joe, have you ever thought of taking this up properly, you know, and going to a proper art school? I've had enough of schools. Too many different schools and too many different places. Well, I think you're wasting yourself, I do. So long as I don't waste anybody else. Anyway, why are you so suddenly interested in me? Never cared much before. I know. I'm a cruel, wicked mother. When the play opens, Joe looks around and she says about the flat, we're supposed to be living on her immoral earnings. <laughs> I mean, it's a send-up of the idea that Helen is a prostitute. And it's also a send-up of how ineffective it is to try and live on immoral earnings because <laughs> landed them in this, you know, crummy bedsit. Oh, completely. I interviewed a, a um, sex worker for a book I wrote a few years ago and she said, you make loads of money at the beginning and then, and then you don't, <laughs> uh, you know, another kind of more realistic take on that. You talk, so we've been talking a lot about the plot of the play, but actually it changed a lot as you've documented in the piece. So 
The play was picked out by Joan Littlewood, who was working at the Theatre Royal Stratford East then, and they worked on it together to bring it to the stage. And there were quite a lot of changes in the, in the final version, the version in the movie, and the kind of initial drafts, which changed maybe quite drastically what Delaney had to say about women and her times that she was living through, and maybe also about her anger. We've talked a lot about pleasure and fun and desire. Um, it's interesting that we... On the other side, all the men with John Osborne, Kenneth Tynan, they were always talking about anger. Um, I wonder how that changes through that. Well, one of the things that I think Selena Todd has really done well in this book, she's a wonderful social historian and she's really recovered the whole history of bringing the play first to the stage and then and then to the screen. And there were a number of changes along the way. I mean, Sheila Delaney wanted to write and she she constructs, and Todd's good on this, she constructs a kind of fiction of herself as a as a naive playwright. In fact, she'd been trying, she'd been carrying around notebooks with her. She tried to start a novel. She'd been trying to write for a while. She'd been going to the theater. She was actually um encouraged to write by her teachers at her secondary modern who thought she was talented. And so she's, she's more ambitious and less naive than she portrays. When she writes to Joan Littlewood sending this play, she says she didn't even know the theater existed. This is complete nonsense. Her best friend goes, go later goes to Rada, but she does, you know, she, she, it's true that she's from a working class family. She's, um, basing the play not on her own life but she's using what she says in an interview is that she's applying imagination to observation and she is doing something like that the play itself and you see this more in her second play the lion in love she doesn't she doesn't yet know very much about staging it and about getting the plot going and things like that and they did work on the play together todd says and we have to you know, rely on her for this because I haven't looked at drafts of the play or anything like that. But but it's really significant that actually Joan Littlewood changes the ending to the play. The ending of the play is not that Helen comes back having been thrown out by Peter and Joe has to kind of take her mother in and Helen gets rid of Jeff, the gay art student in short order. And so they they're they're there together again. What happens in the initial version is that Helen and Peter together take Joe in and she's going to have their baby, her baby with them, which is actually a rather more believable thing. But Littlewood wanted, I think, Joe to be more the center of the play. And when it moved to the screen and Tony Richardson and Delaney worked together on the screenplay, that happened still more that Joe is very, very much the center of the film. Helen disappears for a while and the romances become more important. They don't turn into marriage plots. I'll give them that. They're not deforming the play, but partly to make it more dramatic, I think, it's more about these romantic entanglements. And, um, you know, so the the character of it changes a little bit. Um Delaney said when she started the play, it only had Helen and Joe. 
And it was the two of them and their relationship that is really the heart of the play. And Todd does a good job of recovering that for us and kind of insisting. She's very insistent on this, that 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 mother-daughter relationship is the heart of the play. It's much more intense and durable and meaningful than anything else going on in the play. And I think that's right. It's a kind of bleak portrait in some ways of motherhood, but the intensity of it makes it up. And that line, ruin it in your own way, is actually a line that uh, Delaney reused in her second play, also a mother saying that to a daughter, as the daughter decides she's going to head off to London, I think, with her lover. And the mother says, well, it's your life, ruin it your own way. Yeah, I do have that line. You talked as well about, earlier on, touched on this, that she doesn't use Jimmy, the character that makes her pregnant, isn't... So he's a he's a black sailor but she doesn't make the point about race it's not supposed to be about race and similarly perhaps with Jeff the gay character and and is that something that was original to the play that it what she does with those moments yes I think that's uh really really interesting there's a there's a and it goes back to that uh what I was saying about her sense of irony her her ability to kind of skewer pomposity and social pretension, but also to skewer kind of high-mindedness and so on. And when we think of, of like the kind of engagement with the ki- kind of race relations in exactly this period, the film that I often show for my students is Basil Dearden's film Sapphire, which is a brilliant film about the murder of a young girl on Hampstead Heath. The body is found there. And then it's a whodunit. And it ends up being the girl is passing for white, but she isn't white. And it's all about the ways in which um, kind of racism kills her. But it's it's full of, you know, kind of earnest discussions of that. And Sheila Delaney is just not like that at all. There's a hysterical bit in the film. First of all, Jimmy is a very charming character. And there's a very funny and kind of sweet flirtation between the two of them and they play on his blackness he's he says in the play he jokes about being her more from Othello and uh she also says at one point did your ancestors come from Africa and he says no from Cardiff which I think is just a great kind of taking apart of this idea of you know this positing of non-white characters as alien presences. I mean, he's just like completely part of the normal course of life. I mean, he's, he's, he's a catch as a boyfriend. He's, (laughs) you know, he's a very charming and attractive person. And he's, um, so he's really a, a great character. And Jeff is a, um, I feel it, it, it comes out a little more stereotypically, but is also um, an interesting character. And they have, Joe and Jeff have this kind of babes in the woods aspect to their life together. You know, he's always kind of trying to take care of her and making her hot milk or whatever and saying she has to learn how to bathe a baby and trying to get her, you know, um, useful advice from the mother's clinic and this sort of thing. <laughs> So he does a lot of mothering. Yes, he he does a lot of mothering. He's much more 
motherly in that sense than Helen is. And there is a kind of awkwardness about the fact that you get the sense that, you know, they're doing quite well together. And the way the play was rewritten brings Helen back in. I don't know how um, the initial version dealt with that, got Joe into Helen and Peter's house instead. Um, But uh, Jeff is also an interesting character and treated very just as part of the normal course of things. Mm, Taken as he is sort of thing. Yeah. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. I wondered how Delaney did fit with the angry young men then, because we've talked about, in a sense of what context was she seen in? How was she, was she understood as being angry? We've talked a lot about all this desire and pleasure, but perhaps it wasn't seen like that at all. You know, Delaney did support some of the causes that are kind of identified with that moment. She was, she joined CND. Um, she was uh, uh, critical of the 11 plus. She tried to found a kind of people's theater in Salford when she was quite young. But her, her tone is simply very different. It, it is interesting. I think the closest thing would be, so after the first two plays, she broke with Littlewood over um, the second play, The Lion in Love. And after that, she wrote scripts, film scripts mostly. She she didn't write a great deal in her life. Um, and But she, she worked with Lindsay Anderson on this short film called The White Bus. And I find it completely hysterical. It is much more absurdist and kind of ironic and funny it, than angry young men fiction. It isn't that the sensibility is just very different. It's just the, this girl who is working in an office and she looks exactly like Sheila Delaney. She's very tall, dark hair. And she was played by Patricia Healy. She's kind of an alter ego clearly. And she gets on the train and she goes north and then she gets on this bus, this white bus that is taking a group of visiting dignitaries around Manchester, Salford. And it's, it's showing all the delights of the, you know, city in the grip of civic improvement. So it's the, you know, the new built flats, which, you know, look pretty soulless, high rise um, apartment buildings and factories and this, that, and the other thing. Part of the major slum clearance scheme, this estate has rehoused many thousands of citizens. And we are particularly proud of it as representing our most distinguished achievements so far. In the rehousing of citizens, 
whose previous dwellings have been situated in less salubrious neighborhoods, often built without consideration to their surrounding industries. Flat dwelling has not been popular up to now, but we are gradually breaking down this resistance by showing how pleasant it can be to live in flats if they are well planned and situated in pleasant surroundings. What she does is, is well, this is Anderson, presumably, but she takes these things that were, you know, very much the subject of earnest effort, and she kind of makes them strange. You look at them and you think, you know, why did people decide to build the flats looking like that exactly? You just, she just is very good at skewering pomposity and convention. So in that sense, she's like the angry young man, I guess, but anger isn't the right register. She's not angry. She's ironic, subtle, funny. And that goes back to something that Todd says in the biography that I had no idea about, which was that Delaney was spurred to write, not by watching Shakespeare or the Angries or something like that, but she had seen Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And after that, she started trying to write. And that makes a lot of sense to me because Beckett is, is the sensibility is kind of similar. Now, what's, what's the play happy day it's rather like that you know think it's it's this kind of ironic very you know it's entire people are trapped in situations and they just talk and talk and talk I mean she is a bit like that that made sense to me all of a sudden it kind of fell into place it also what you were talking it made me think about um the novelist and playwright Nell Dunn, who similarly has all these characters who go from job to job and are looking for a fun and not looking for marriage and have a similar sort of attitude. And um, again, like as you write, it's not the you would never talk about Nell Dunn as being angry, but it has the same sort of like tone to it. It's interesting that women should should see it in a slightly different way, perhaps not all and not all the time, but. Um, that seems to me really interesting, a really fruitful way of thinking about that. Tell me a bit more about Delaney's life. I mean, the first part of her life seems to be the kind of almost a Cinderella rags to riches, starts off in Salford, you know, doing all sorts of odd jobs, doesn't even make it to the grammar school and then ends up being this, you know, on the West End and then on in Hollywood, pretty much. Um, is that right to talk of it as a rags to riches? I'm not sure. One of the reasons I think Selena Todd was a good biographer for this person is that she recovers the aspirations of that early post-war period as well. I mean, so Delaney did have a kind of tough life in a sense, especially her early life, because her father uh, went off to war when she was quite a young child and he was wounded. He came back and he was never really very well again. And he died just as a taste of honey was kind of becoming, you know, coming onto the stage and which is quite sad. And so her mother was working through her childhood. She was living in a multi-generational household, which is kind of, you see that in the lion and love that there are these households and, you know, they're, they're multi-generational and the women are really the heart of them. And she did grow up in that kind of a household. When he came back though, 
you know, they moved to kind of the suburbs, well, sub to a housing estate on the edge of town. And they, uh, because he was a veteran, they were kind of in line for a, a reasonable three bedroom house. She didn't actually like that. She preferred the life of the area near the docks. It was more interesting. There was more going on. But Todd is is very insistent on the fact that this was a kind of social democratic moment. And, you know, the it's the period of the labor government and then after, and there's more of an effort to actually do things for for children. And you get that sense, you know, the part about taking odd jobs, it, yes, but it's also this moment when young people can slide into one job after another pretty easily. She has to make money because she needs to contribute to the factory, to the family. And so she works as a, a, as an assistant in a photography department at a big armaments firm. And she works uh, as an usherette. And she does, I think, one or two for a clo- uh, short period of time in a clothing store with her cousin. Her cousin said she was hopeless. She used to just basically go to sleep. She was so uninterested in the work. But, but you know, she could, she could get these jobs and they left her enough time to kind of explore and, you know, they paid something or other. And so there is this kind of sense that it's a kind of hopeful world, actually. And the criticism that, that you can imagine girls, especially young girls, felt of this is that it was so gendered, so oriented towards women marrying young. It's an age of, uh, it's a period of low age of marriage, women getting married young, having children young, you know, and she's just interested in kind of finding her way. So it is true. I think it's one of the questions I have about Delaney's life, what it meant that she was so successful so young. Um, Todd quotes something uh, that her daughter said about later, you know, if she wasn't interested in a project, she would kind of walk off or would say she wouldn't do it because she'd been made much of very young. And she sold the film rights to A Taste of Honey for 20,000 pounds, which is about half a million pounds today. And that's a lot of money when you're like 20 years old. She didn't even control it until she was 21. And then she bought this house on Gerard Road in Islington, and she lived there. And she did take up other um, kinds of writing, but she didn't write that much. And I think she got very used to pushing people away. And you can see why she would want to do that. Um, If you look at, say, clips of uh, people interviewing her, there's a great one where the interviewee manages in about 90 seconds to both suggest that she couldn't really have written the play herself and turn it to this question of whether she's getting married or not. How much help did you have in writing your play? Um, well, originally, when I wrote the original thing, I, I didn't have any help at all. You know, I just wrote it. But when I um, it's went into production, I think Joan Littlewood is the most sort of valuable person I've ever met. 
as far as work's concerned. She is producing the play? Yeah. Your play draws a sordid theme. Where did you gather your information? Uh, I just uh, applied my imagination to my observation. That's a safe answer. Observation where? In your native language? Yeah. Well, I, I had to be there. I'd never been anywhere else. I understand you're getting married soon. No, I'm not getting married soon at all, no. It's been reported. It has been, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that, that sort of thing isn't usually very reliable, is it? <laughs> you know, she, she was confronting a world where people just couldn't imagine that she had done this, written this very remarkable play, and when she did become quite a big deal, she was really hounded by the press. And she had a child as a lone mother, and then the press was after her to find out who the father was, to try and, you know, photograph her, and I think she just got very sick of all of that. And she, uh, Todd says she didn't give another interview after she had her daughter for 14 years. And it's hard to sustain a career, I think, entirely on your own like that while raising a daughter and um, while trying to keep a kind of independence. And so, you know, I, I went away from the book with a lot of questions about Sheila Delaney's later life. I think that's because Todd does concentrate on Delaney in her 20s when she was this uh, sort of public phenomenon and, you know, very much in the public eye. A Taste of Honey came to, to New York. You know, it won the New York Critics or uh, Drama Critics Circle Award. It, you know, she was quite a phenomenon here as well. And she developed friendships with people in New York and went back and forth a fair amount. Uh, her daughter's father was a New York agent and who then was in London with his family for a while. And that, um, so she, she was quite a, she was in this very literary, very theatrical world, um, but she was kind of on her own. You talk about the Todd biography that you, I think you put it some, somewhere that is sort of three quarters of the way through the book. She's still only in her twenties. And so we have this, she died in 2011 I mean, that's that's a long time since the kind of the early 60s. And so there is this question, and you said that she burnt all her letters. It's a problem of writing her life. I mean, what do we do with a life like that when we're missing the, all of the evidence we need to be able to construct that? I mean, who, it's very hard to tell apart from all these little glimpses from, as you say, interviews from her daughter, or um, she also wrote one more play about Ruth Ellis, didn't she? A TV play, the, the dance that was quite... Yes, quite... Um, she wrote, it's a movie, Dance with a Stranger, which is about Ruth Ellis. Ruth Ellis was the last woman hanged for murder in Britain. Um, she murdered her abusive lover and shot him. And Delaney wrote that, and that was a big hit. And I think it, Rupert Everett plays the menacing, handsome guy. And she did do some other writing. She wrote a number of uh, radio plays for the BBC. And uh, she, I think she did some, some amount of kind of jobbing writing as well. But she didn't do stage work anymore. I think she moved away from that into other kinds of writing. But it, but it is true that I think Todd was confronted by 
Delaney's own desire clearly to keep her secrets, to keep her privacy. And when, when people are serious about that, that's what they do. They burn their letters. And there's actually, I think this is something that if you write about women, you really need to confront. I've written a biography. I wrote a biography of Eleanor Rathbone, who was a member of parliament between the wars. Um, She lived all her life with another woman, Elizabeth McAdam. And the correspondence between the two of them was also burned, uh, with the exception of one letter, which I managed to extract from a relative at one point. You know, I think there's also a question then about does the biographer feel protective of the subject? Do they want to respect what is the subject's wishes clearly for biography. I'm pretty unscrupulous on this front. I feel, you know, historians and biographers write for the record. They don't write for the subject. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's important to have a biographer, particularly for someone like Sheila Delaney, who is empathetic and cares about the subject. But the, the lack of material does raise problems. And I think... I'm not sure how to suggest one deals with that. But in my own work, I've tried to make that itself a subject, if you see what I mean. Why is it that women burn their letters? Years ago, there was a piece written by a woman named Estelle Friedman, a historian, important American historian, and uh, it called The Burning of Letters Continues. And it's about how hard it is to write the history of women if our subjects go around burning for what are really good and sufficient reasons to protect their reputations because they live in the midst of prurience, they go around burning their letters. So one would want to be able to have fuller accounts that are nonetheless empathetic, right? So I I left the book, you know, really, really grateful for everything I had learned about Delaney's early life, but with a kind of niggling question about her her life when she grew older. Yeah, you sort of wish that we'd been able to get sort of one last interview with her, you know, sort of mid-late, sort of 2009 or something, just get her to kind of go through some of these things. It is a problem for women's writing. Often it happens the other way. So I think of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes kind of burning her stuff. Um, uh, but isn't they people do burn their own stuff. And um, what you said also reminded me of you know, this book by Sidia Hartman called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, where it's black women's lives are not kind of available from the archives. So she's had to imagine what they would be like. Um, there were all these kind of strategies for dealing with it, but the essential problem is, yeah, what, what the sort of good reasons for the gaps, but hopefully in a better world, there won't be any, won't be good reasons for gaps. <laughs> so it's funny because, um, you know, it, it, I'm working on a collective biography now and there's a great deal of difficulty with um, the curation of much of the material. It's all been represented and, clipped and expurgated and it's kind of difficult but in some ways I think that's one of the things that makes the work of writing about women's lives quite exciting because it's a it's a spur to creativity and imagination I mean talking about Sadia Hartman is a good example of that like what do you do 
if you don't have the material, there are still things that you can say and the lack of the material and the effort at um, removal of material and records is itself a subject that is very, very worth writing about. And so, you know, I think in, in that sense, it's, it's a privilege to work on that kind of material as well, because you, you, it's, you're being asked to be much more imaginative than, you know, if you're just sitting with a complete record of something, I mean, not that we ever have complete records, but you know, one of the things that I think working on a a subject like this is it forces you to pause and realize what we can't know and to be more honest about that. I think of my life, there are things that people don't know about my life where I burned the record and I did that for good and sufficient reasons. And, you know, that's fine. And I think it's simply the case that we should assume there's some amount of that kind of stuff in most people's lives and, you know, have a bit of, have some method of kind of thinking about what that might be or the limits to what we can know and how we construct the life ourselves. Sometimes the life we want as well. I mean, when I wrote about Eleanor Rathbone, I felt there was a lot of, she was, uh, she was a stake in other arguments as well. So, you know, I felt like I was constantly dealing with people who, or not people, but dealing with a a historiography or a, a memory that either wanted to hold her up as a great hero or as someone who led the feminist movement down the wrong path. And it's just when you're, when you're dealing with all that, kind of detritus in the way it's really, you know, it's part of the story. The appropriation of the person is part of the story. And I think that is part of, for, for Sheila Delaney, people were trying to really appropriate her. You know, she was supposed to be the represent. I mean, first Salford city fathers said she was bringing their town into disrepute. And then they were trying to appropriate her. as, the, you know? And you're just like, how does, you know, it's amazing that she was able to find a voice with all that background noise. Yeah, all that chatter there. No, exactly. And in some ways, I think maybe she's sort of laughing at us. You know, she's burnt all these letters. She knows the story and we're never going to know. And we're going to have to just live with that. And she'd probably think it was funny, like a baguette in silence or something. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. That's been so interesting and fascinating to hear that. You can read more on the LRB website, lrb.co.uk. Thank you.